Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, resilience, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Today, we are going to be talking about uh, another book. You know I love to read. I'm always reading, and uh, this week is no exception. Returning this week is the author of Building Resilient Futures, Robert Hall. Robert, welcome back. Alex, thank you very much indeed, and nice to be back, and and thank you for having me back. Well, I, I... I know the last time we, we spoke, I said, we when your book comes out, I, I want to have you back, and it's out. So congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. Now, I know you, uh, as I said, you've been on the show before, um, but just in case anybody wasn't listening or hasn't seen the previous episodes, can you just take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourself? And then we'll yes, start talking into all the things we've got uh, on our plate today. Yes, of course. Um, well, I spent about a third of my working life in the military, the British Army, um, and two thirds in public and private sectors, um, where I've worked for an international public account on internet intelligence journals, um, the National Criminal Intelligence Service, now the NCA in the UK, uh, as well as corporates like Barclays Bank, um, British American Tobacco, G4S, and Marsh McLennan. Um, and most uh, of those posts uh, have been uh, in risk and resilience. And my last job, which was working for a business company called Resilience First, uh, was trying to promote resilience within business. I hope that gives you a flavor. Well, welcome back. I'm glad to have Thank you. you. So let's jump into some of the key topics you have that are in your book that you cover. Uh, um, because there's a lot of good, uh, interesting bits of information in here. Um, but the first question I do want to ask you is, what made you write the book? Yep, no, that's a good question. Um, well, after several years in, in risk security and resilience in, in the positions I've sort of described, um, I've naturally developed a very keen interest in the topic. Uh, and that's grown really in, in importance over time. Um, and I think others have shown a similar interest uh, because I looked up this morning on Google um, when you type in the word resilience, uh, it comes up with 742 million entries. Wow. Um, so there are clearly there's a great deal of interest around the world. Um, and I felt I needed to consolidate my thinking and conversations with many good people over the years. Um, and particularly as I have now had an opportunity uh, in the hope of what I had to say uh, might be of help to others. Um, it took me six months to write. because I had a lot of material assembled beforehand, um, but it's taken a year with the publishers to get it out. So uh, what I did was produce an addendum to the book, which tried to cover uh, the gap between it being released and me starting work. Um, I've also wanted to explore um, various aspects of resilience. Um, and in the book, you'll see there are sections on personal resilience, emotional resilience, organizational, urban, social and national resilience, um, as well as aspects of leadership uh, and standards to show the complexity of the problem or the subject rather than the problem, the subject. Um, and unlike um, many other books, it, it's not meant to be a survival guide for those wanting to toughen up. Uh, at all. It's more a reference guide to uh, a holistic look at the subject of resilience. Um, and I'm continuing my interest because I'm spending that time now uh, looking at uh, a sequel, uh, which is going to look at natural resilience, how animals and plants use resilience 
don't obviously call it that, um, and what lessons they have for us as we go forward in struggling to keep the environment alive. Yeah, and that's an important point, considering all the things that are going on right now as a recording, all the wildfires in Canada. Yeah. The unbelievable heat waves going through uh, Greece, also expecting fires. Southern Europe and Southern US, you know, it's just yeah, crazy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So let's jump into uh, one of the first uh, topics that you talk about, and that is a changing world. Yeah. So why can we not just rely on technology to create resilience? Because as you mentioned, that Google search, there's a, a big response that will come from vendors. You know, mm -hmm. and if you have this application or technology or whatever, you, you can become resilient or create resilience. So what, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, well, technology has its own resilience capacity, I believe, uh, and it can clearly greatly help us. I mean, you only have to think of how we survived, both as a communities, but as business as well, uh, through video conferencing during COVID. I mean, without that, um, I think we would have been a real, real mess. Um, and the same comment, positive comment applies to infrastructure. I think that is, has its own resilience through protocols and standards uh, and the like. Um, and as with AI and climate change breathing down us, uh, then I think we're going to move into a whole new plane of resilience using those uh, aspects uh, for our life. However, um, in the final analysis, I would argue that it, it's people uh, not technology or infrastructure, who determine um, where an organization, a community, uh, or a business um, actually is resilient, proves to be resilient. Um, and those, it's a combination of two, technology, infrastructure, and people, people who determine things. Um, and here's an example of London. I don't know how Toronto sits, but uh, London has, uh, is said to be a very resilient city. And, History has proved that. But when you look at some of the technology and infrastructure, it's almost Victorian in part. Um, so I think if something happens in London, I would like to think that it's the people who uh, overcome the problem uh, using technology and infrastructure, but it's not the reverse way. Uh, and an interesting analogy is, is aircraft. I mean, 80% of aircraft losses are due to human failure, mm -hmm. not the or despite the advanced technological signs uh, and high standards, probably the higher standards in uh, the airline industry. Um, you still have emergencies, crises. Uh, so technology doesn't get you out of it. It does help. Um, I think people uh, and any recovery uh, will be determined by the experience of people. Uh, how they're empowered, how they're led, how they're motivated, how they're resourced. Um, and it's a combination, as we'll, we'll be speaking later, I believe, of, of combining both the top and the bottom, the technologies with the people. Um, and that's the way a system or community or country is going to be resilient. And in my book, I try to bring out this uh, people issue uh, by using uh, a story from history uh, about Sir Ernest Shackleton, who conducted an expedition to Antarctica in the early 19th, uh, 19th century, um, sorry, 20th century, uh, 1914, he set out. Um, and he went with a team of about 27 men to the South Atlantic in an attempt to try and cross the Antarctica. Um, but his ship, the Endurance, a good name, was sadly trapped in the ice, uh, about 100 miles short of his objective, uh, and eventually sank through crushing. And he spent two years with that crew trying to get them back. He did. Amazingly, he survived, and so did all the other men. But the story, if you read it in the book, is absolutely brilliant one of resilience. How Sir Ernest and his crew managed to overcome all the difficulties they had, and it green weather um, and allow themselves to be rescued. Uh, Ernest Shackleton rescued them 
um, in spite of those difficulties. And it was through his strength and courage and determination and resilience that he got them through. So I use it just as an example, not that we all go to expeditions to Antarctica, but I think they embody the characteristic of being a resilient person. And we all have to uh, read and record and take notice of characteristics if we're going to sort of meet this challenging world violent and volatile uh it's certainly uncertain it's very complex and it's ambiguous and i think we need to have that resilience and that agility and flexibility with the technology piece why is it that people seem to want to find that silver bullet well i think we're all all looking for a silver bullet yeah Um, what is it they're they're trying to find if if resilience, you know, buying an application, let's say, you know, with, with Shackleton um, or, or using something like that, that's not going to make him resilient because you just pointed out some of the characteristics that he had to to be successful, you know, and survive. Mm. But why is mm. it when people think, you know, if I buy an application or technology is my silver bullet, that'll help? Well, I think we all have that characteristic of, of wanting an easy, easier life, uh, uh, an easier way of overcoming a difficulty or a problem. And technology often provides that. You, you just need to look at your iPhone to, to see what it provides you and the ease with which it, it does that. The danger is we've become so dependent on it. Um, if you took people's iPhone away, besides loss um, and, and uh, the feeling of uh, sheer isolation, um, we have lost the ability to look for an alternative. Uh, I wonder how many people today would be able to read a, a standard map on, on a piece of paper um, and plot a route, um, because we don't need to do that anymore. Uh, and so much uh, of our society is dependent upon technology, which is great because it makes our life easier. Uh, I think sometimes we forget the fact that it may not be there, uh, and you just recording recently the experiences and the fires in, in Greece, uh, in the Greek islands, uh, people who had reliance on their mobile phones suddenly don't have it because the fire has taken out the power uh, and the masts, and they are trapped and they don't know who, who to turn to. And I think we constantly need to remind ourselves that while technology is great and there, sometimes we need an alternative if it's suddenly dropped. Is it easier just to look at technology than it is to sometimes uh, face our own, um, it's not the right word, but deficiencies? Yes, it is. Um, And I think the fewer experiences, sharp experiences we have, the more we're reliant on it. And people who are coming back from the Greek islands will certainly be aware that next time their mobile phones be relied on in certain circumstances and they may be more willing to look at alternatives uh, um, as well. I'm going to take an early break because the next topic we're going to talk about has to do with societal engagement and I don't want to cut you off uh, halfway through. I really want to uh, focus on that one because that's something uh, a little different that uh, a lot of others uh, people are talking about. And so I'm really interested to get your thoughts on uh, societal engagement. Sure. So we're talking today with Robert Hall, the author of Building Resilient Futures, and we will be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. 
disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fulick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Robert Hall, the author of Building Resilient Futures. Robert, great first segment there. I really liked the, the talk about people and technology. Um, there's another piece of your book that I find rather interesting as well, and that is has to do with mobilizing a nation. And you talk about societal engagement. Yeah. What are you talking yeah. about that? Well, I mentioned uh, in the book the concept of, of social capital. Uh, and community resilience, which builds on people being keen at people's but in a wider context. Um, And I think you need to consider the increasingly large scale of some of the emergencies and the crises that we are experiencing, whether it's climate or migration or terrorism or whatever. The the scale of these uh, disasters crises are increasing and it's no longer possible just to consider the the emergency services um, and the few leaders uh, and specialists if we are going to overcome this. Um, so we need to think about how we can bring more of the community and I, I'll come on to what I mean by that. Uh, into effect, to how to mobilise them um, in order to deal with these crises. And it's been proved um, through uh, records and research of, of past crises that communities with a deeper reservoir um, of social resilience, collective resilience, uh, have shown to, to have higher survival rates after recovery times Uh, after uh, an incident. So there's evidence to say what I'm arguing for is is true. How do we do it? That's the very difficult part. And in my book, I look at immediate community communal recovery after the massive explosion uh, in the port of Beirut in 2020. Mm -hmm. And the community there was the first responder, clearly. People were on the ground. Uh, and they were there before the international community came in, and they had to really uh, deal with the sweeping up of the glass and the treatment of uh, individuals and, and housing many people who had been uh, bombed out of their house. So it is essentially a, a locally-led response, but it's about bringing the whole community, in that case Beirut, into play. And the common phrase that is appearing in, in a lot of literature at the moment about resilience, and certainly on this side, is this idea of whole of society or whole of nation resilience. And I think that's quite a good expression of what I'm talking about community. You need to go to the wider uh, society if you are going to raise the number of people you need to be engaged. 
you need to talk to the public and the private sectors, the voluntary and charity sectors, um, the religious groups, the NGOs, trade unions, colleges and schools, the, the whole mass of, of what constitutes the community in, in an effort to bring people together. And we did this uh, with COVID. I'm sure you did it in Canada. Um, but the numbers we're talking about in terms of COVID, we put out a voluntary call for people to help with the uh, vaccination and treatment of people during COVID. 750,000 people picked up that response. Many of them didn't um, call forward. You can see the scale of people are willing to be engaged in such time. So I'm, when I'm talking about whole of society, I'm talking about not a few hundred or a few thousand, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people being mobilised to deal with the emergency, whatever that may be. And we certainly are going to face some national type emergencies in the future. But if we're going to do this, we need to organise, not at time of the crisis, but organised in times of peace. Um, and you know, we need to organise by mobilising that number of that sort of thousands of people by recruiting, identifying and recruiting and training, uh, equipping, exercising uh, and providing the necessary equipment. Now, all that is no small mean feat. I absolutely accept. And often people and governments will walk about because of the cost certainly the peacetime cost of trying to organise you know, a massive connection between people, individuals and communities and businesses in readiness for something that may or may not happen and going to happen at some point, you don't know when. Um, and that's the challenge. And I don't see uh, governments at the moment, certainly government, this government, the UK government, having used the term in, in some of its strategic writing, uh, yet being able to provide the solution to mobilising that nation in a way that I think will be required. Um, and I think we can take some solace from the fact that other countries have made more advance than we have. I would label particularly the Scandinavian and Baltic countries um, as being more advanced in its ability to mobilise their nations. Uh, you could say, well, perhaps that's because of the bear next door that uh, gives them more of an incentive. Um, but I think there are other crises that are coming down the pipe, um, climate being one of them, um, which will cause us to look to those uh, Baltic and Scandinavian countries as a way of having a, being able to tap into their national spirit um, and get people to be prepared. And, and the Finnish government, for example, have got you know very large contingency of, of uh, conscripts. Um, who come from the population and are ready to man uh, many of the facilities in, within Finland. And while many Western countries have abolished conscription, uh, we find, need to find a way of, of motivating and recruiting people who will stand instead. Well, okay, so let, let's use uh, Toronto or where you are as an example. And you mentioned some groups, universities, NGOs, etc. How would you go about bringing them all together? Because they're all going to have their own perspectives. They're all uh, their own uh, priorities, uh, things that they want to address or not address. Uh, so how do you start bringing them all together so that you can start um, building some sort of uh, resilience within a community? Because yeah. as an example, you know, NGOs don't just look at one area. They, they can be all over the place. Universities have students and, and uh, you know attending from all around the world. It's not just really you know the building yeah. is in one spot, but the people are from everywhere. So yeah. how do you bring uh, start bringing all those together to create a sense of community to create resilience? Yeah, well, very good questions. I, and I think the first point I, I would make this has to be a, a volunteering activity. You can't mandate people; they don't know. Um, so I think we have to have an organizational group, an organization created that into the spirit of volunteering. It is there, and we know it's there, but on a wider scale we need. Um, 
And that can only come from government and from government. Create the apparatus uh, that will link these various volunteering bodies together um, and provide them with the necessary motivation, uh, even um, some cash perhaps, uh, to attend uh, training sessions periodically. Um, and the spirit that I think needs to be done in this needs to start at colleges and school levels talk about what resilience means for a nation and the fact that people will have to have a responsibility uh, to contribute and help rebuild um, a shattered economy, nation, community, whatever it is, um, and to understand what that resilience is about, both personal and communal. Um, but I think if you don't get that mixing, matching of both the volunteering spirit with a organization that can tap into it and muster it, um, report it, have a telephone number, um, then you're not going to get it. So that's why a lot of the 750,000 people I spoke about who signed up, volunteered during COVID in this country uh, weren't subsequently um, used but might still be there if we had the telephone numbers and the organization uh, to ring them up again and say, would you be willing to help on this particular occasion? Mm -hmm. But it's something else. Um, so I, I, I think there's a there's a spirit there. It needs to be developed. And I think schooling and education are about looking for But we need a mobilization capability, almost like a military, um, but not on a military basis um, because it's volunteering. Uh, whereby these people can be involved. I think the part about uh, starting in uh, schools and schooling because it, younger minds are more open to different things and they're they're not set in their ways, right? And that that's one way uh, to start resilience because the minds are more open; they're not closed. No, you're absolutely right. It's a very good age to do that. And, and interestingly, France is trying with, with some stumbles to have some summer schools um, <clears throat> for the young people to undertake, undertake some resilience volunteering training. Uh, and that can take a wide variety of forms. It doesn't have to be militarily based basis of, you know, but it just brings people together and shows what they can do in a, in a collective. And, and um, I wish them well in what they're doing. I think we'll have to see it happen here. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on to another topic that you have, um, cause and effect. How do you change the thinking from risk to resilience? And what does that mean? Yeah. Well, traditionally, <clears throat> the risk has been largely about operationalization of risk registers. Um, and all, we've all seen risk registers using colors like red, amber, green um, <clears throat> to show impact and likelihood. And those have certain merits. Um, sometimes they're taken to the nth degree um, and company risk registers can have 300 risks on them, uh, which is a challenge in itself. But they're all based very much on a sort of a mechanistic approach to risk. Um, quantitative, siloed, even structured approach where you know we look back on how many floods we've had <clears throat> in this particular area over the last 10 years. Um, and then we sort of extrapolate those. Um, the next 10 years are going to be another X number of floods. <clears throat> and we use probabilistic methods to sort of show that. Mm -hmm. charts. <clears throat> but the problem is that in this current period of very rapid change in the world, I think many modern threats don't have precedence. I mean, fires and floods. Whereas before we could say, you know, the frequency of a fire is one in a hundred years. Um, now it's happening every few years in some places. Um, so the, the old probabilistic methods 
uh, are no longer proving valid. Um, so I think we need to look at a look at it in a different way. I mean, I'm saying move away from that. We need to go on having risk registers. Clearly, um, they give us an indication of uh, what are out there. But if the way of assessing them, this uh, mechanistic way, is not proving anymore, then we need to look elsewhere. I would I would argue, I say in my book, that rather than looking at these hundreds of risks um, and their causes, um, it's better to look at the consequences of those risks in a, in a generic sense. So that you are trying to find common responses that will allow you to bring them to the fore, whatever the cause may be, whenever it appears. And many of these consequences are common. So, you know, if, whether it's a flood or a fire, you still need a safe place to go. Uh, you still need um, equipment. Uh, to deal with that, you still need a communication system to tell people what. Um, so I think there's there's just a need to, to shift the emphasis from the traditional enterprise risk management to what I argue for enterprise resilience management, which takes the focus away from the risks and puts them onto the consequences, uh, so that we have these built-in uh, ready when when necessary. And it allows you, I think, also to combine many of the the soft skills of resilience, the with the hard technological or institutional elements uh, in a more balanced way than you perhaps would do if you just look on the risks. Um, in order to do this, uh, I don't think it's a massive readjustment. Of our emphasis, uh, we need more chief risk risk or chief resilience officers in organisations, and again, we need to educate people throughout the spectrum on on what resilience means and how they can contribute to it, um, by looking at what their the consequences on them might be, um, so that they have a, a go go to bag. Um, which can deal with earthquakes, floods, fires, um, rather than worry about is an earthquake going to happen tomorrow? Prepared, it's, it's better rather than worrying about what might happen. You bring up an interesting point there uh, with regards to the cause and effect. All of the, or most of, I should say, I shouldn't say all, most of the training that we receive in the res resilience industry or disaster recovery or business continuity um, industry all focus on various scenarios. Mm -hmm. What do you do when there is a fire? What do you do when there's a flood? Mm -hmm. We're not really being taught what do you do, at, you know, what's the effect of a disaster on your operations or your home or your community? You know, to your point, it's the cause, but we're being taught something different. Mm -hmm. Is that where we need to start making the change is getting some of these uh training providers and uh, industry bodies to change their thinking as well? Yes, I think I think it is. Um, and to use some examples, in, in some of the Baltic countries, and we're just beginning to do that here, we are launching academies or colleges around resilience, which allow the public, the private, uh, the volunteering sectors to come together uh, to discuss, um, to exercise, um, and to build links between one another. So, you know, you know who to speak to. Now, you know, this can be done on a, a national scale, but it can also be done on a local scale so that uh, you have a regular contact with people involved in this space of emergency work. Um, and you know who in business to go to if you have a problem and you want more bottled water um, or you need some more telephones, um, rather than wait um, and then ponder and wonder, who do I ring up to ask for these things? Um, so it needs to be both individual, um, and we do need communications 
that aren't alarmist, but alert people to the fact that you need be ready for the fact that your mobile phone might go out because the power drops or the mobile phone goes out um, or whatever. Um, so there's an individual element, but there's a there's a communal societal basis whereby I know who to go to if I need to have more uh, services and equipment of the local community. Uh, and that, that needs, they both need to be done in peacetime. They both need to be done with a good communication strategy behind them so that people don't dismiss it as, oh, this is alarmist propaganda, that nothing's going to happen to me, um, which is often the response when you're talking about, you know, how to go to uh, we tried that in, in Scotland and, and it was laughed out of court because it wasn't prepared enough to alert people to. Uh, at the same time, we need these colleges and, and communi communication uh, systems whereby we can get people together to discuss something uh, for the eventuality. So it, it's a, a mixed bag, Alex, mm -hmm. uh, and it needs to be done in a concerted, coordinated way. So there needs to be one central government approach to this, encouragement to do this, rather than just leave it completely to the ground. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but think of an example of um, different ways to communicate. And oddly enough, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, back in the Middle Ages uh, and sooner um, along the southern and western coast of uh, Great Britain, where there would be these uh, big pyre, um, piles of firewood that would get lit. And if it was lit, the next one that could be, I don't know, 10 miles away, but could, could yep. see it would yeah. like theirs, and that would send communication, there's danger coming towards our shores. Yeah. You know, there were yeah. no phones or anything like that, but, you know, it, and it may sound silly in today's world, but it was one way to communicate uh, a, a big event that was coming yeah. along. Yeah, no, it was, and, and could well be used again uh, if, the, if the telephone network falls, falls by the wayside. Um, so we should not dismiss it or poo-poo it. Um, it it's, a, it's one way of getting a message across. Um, yeah, my my concern is that we don't prepare enough the communication channels peacetime um, and have to invent them very quickly when something goes wrong. Um, and we need to be bold, and I think this is political leadership in question, to prepare people on what to do when there isn't an immediate emergency. So, you know, we don't suffer, thankfully, earthquakes in the UK, very rarely, do we? Um, so people are not going to be responsive to, you know, how do you how do you recover from an earthquake? But they will be responsive to things that they are increasingly seeing, like floods and fires. And going back to my point about cause and effect, we don't need to um, make them more alarmed by talking about the frequency in which houses burn down with fire. But we're saying, you know, this is this is increasing. And these are some of the common things you can do, whether it's a fire or a flood, that will help yourself um, if there is an emergency. So there are ways of doing this, but they do need to be coordinated across an extensive. And I think the Swedes and the Finns have done this very well um across a range of threats um, and i think we should look at those models uh, and do them ourselves on that note we've come to the end of our second segment today we are talking with robert hall the author of building resilient futures and we will be right back Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. 
Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fulick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Say It Skillfully is my radio show about being who you are and saying what you think needs to be said. This is your host, Molly Chang. I'll help you find the right words to tackle any challenging conversation you've been avoiding. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. You'll learn how to achieve success on your terms and be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in your life. Check out SayItSkillfully.com for practical resources, including my 90-second videos, real-life examples showing you how to speak up skillfully. I invite you to call in with your questions. Join me live every Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. And no, I'm cheering for you. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Robert Hall, the author of Building Resilient Futures. Robert, great first and uh, second segments there. Lots of really interesting uh, perspectives and ideas. Um, for our last segment here, uh, let's talk about agility and adaptability. Uh, how does being agile and adaptable help us? And by us, I, it, it can be individuals, communities, or organizations. Yeah. Well, in my book, um, that generally, uh, agility and adaptability are key elements of resilience. You can't be resilient if you aren't agile, and adaptable, in my estimation. Um, and why do I say that? Well, when you think of resilience being a response to um, a situation, a crisis, an emergency, uh, which may be unexpected or may not be, um, you need to have a flexibility of mind, a fleet of foot, uh, to be able to respond to something that perhaps you hadn't experienced before and take advantage of any opportunities that, that may arise by that situation. So it isn't all bad. It's what can you get out of this that may help you? Um, and it's it centers on really having uh, a mixture um, that allows rapid decision-making with that swift relocation of resources uh, against new priorities. That's what it's all about. You can do that well then you will be resilient and overcome. Uh, and in order to deliver these, these attributes, I think um, good leadership uh, and empowerment are, again, key elements. And I would focus my uh, comments around this on, on what is commonly called the, the North Star, having a North Star, or in other contexts, uh, a mission uh, process, a mission command process, that allows you to identify what is what is important in the crisis. Um, and this obviously comes down to, to good leadership. If you all, in whatever organization or community or country, know what you're trying to achieve, then whatever crisis, emergency and disaster surrounds you, then you know that you have to try and achieve that uh, with what resources you have. And hopefully you are also empowered to have the freedom to muster those resources, achieve that central focus. I mean, the military, to go back to my military days, uh, and the military have certainly adopted this mission focus concept. As long as everybody knows what they are aiming towards, then you can let your subordinates, your soldiers, take their initiative be empowered, 
deliver what you want because you know they know what to do and what you're trying to get. Um, so that's that's the first point about being responsive, agile, and adaptable. In the case of adaptive, I think it's it's of accepting um, the change um, and using your imagination to be flexible and not be constrained by silos that you may have traditionally grown up in in organisations um, because they can be barriers. Uh, if you focus too much on them. And what we need uh, is really to work between boundaries, to, to allow those boundaries to be flexible and, and allow a process of osmosis to occur across them so that you are, again, all working together rather than in narrow boxes, but collectively walk, working towards um, a goal, a common goal. And this is, again, where... Uh, agility, uh, technology, uh, infrastructure can all help lead to uh, what can, can amount to, you know, a transformation in process. And I would highlight in, in all that I said, you know, the Ukrainians at the moment, as being a nation that have shown both, you know, resilience, resistance, but above all, agility and adaptability in the way they have responded to that Russian aggression um, and not worked in boxes themselves, particularly the military, right, Ukrainian military, to the Russian uh, challenge, uh, and have been, you know, largely successful so far in what they've done. So it does work, uh, works individually, and it works on a nation. So that's those are my immediate comments to the. It's interesting that um, adaptability and agility. We talk about that a lot, but. Um, what happens when uh, you organizations and people, they freeze, right? It, it's the uh, fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. So how can you still be uh, agile and uh, adaptable? Or how do you instill that in people when many people just you know, want to run? <laughs> or they want yeah. to ignore that something has happened. But It's it, a, it, a natural, a natural yeah. response, isn't it, yeah. um, to, to flee? Um, I think the only way you can do that is by training and educating. There's a difference between those two. Um, the, so the people have some experience. Um, you don't put them all through a disaster, but they begin to realize that they can influence the situation without fleeing. Um, and that can come through a slow process of educating and training that gives them some awareness of what they are capable of doing. And many people don't realize how capable they can be when the situation requires it, um, a shackle group. Um, so you're never going to dispel it completely. Um, and there will always be that element of panic. But if you can instill in enough people, and this goes again back to my mobilizing a nation, if you can instill in enough people that you know, panic is not the solution, and they can help others by coming together and working together and calming people down, but showing them what they can do. And I think the mass panic uh, can be avoided, um, but it doesn't come naturally, uh, mm -hmm. and it does need that education and training. Um, and it begins at schools. Uh, and it needs to go through business uh, right the way through uh, organizations uh, on a regular basis. We only have a few minutes left. Uh, there was a, a story you wanted to share with us before uh, we, we ended the show today. Would you like to yes, share? Thank you, Alex. Um, it, it's a story which I think is, is worth concluding this conversation on because uh, we've been talking throughout about resilience. But ultimately, resilience does come back to people. I point very at the very start of this. Um, but we need to be clever and we need to be understanding of circumstances in order to make the most of resilience. So this little story, which I will recount, um, I think just summarizes it quite well. Um, it, it's, it's featured in, as I say, in the epilogue of my book. Um, and I don't claim it to claim originality because it was told by a 
sound gentleman called Ellie Weisman in uh, 1999 in the White House when he recounted it in front of the president. And it says this, it's about an emperor who had heard that there was a wise man with special powers. Uh, And the man knew when the wind was blowing, uh, what messages it would carry. Uh, and he was able to read the clouds and realize that uh, he knew what the clouds would bring. Um, and he heard that the birds, he heard the birds, and he understood the burping of the birds carrying messages. So the emperor heard about this man, and he also knew how to read other people's minds. Uh, so he said, I want to see this guy. And, you know, I'd love to talk to him. So he got his his uh, people to bring the guide to him. And he, he asked him a series of questions. And is it, is it true that you know how to read the clouds? Uh, asked him. Yes, Majesty, it's true. Um, and is it true you know the language of birds? Oh, yes, Majesty, I, I know about birds too. Okay, said the emperor. I have in my hands behind my back bird tell me is it alive or not and the wise man was so afraid that whatever he said would be a tragedy uh, i was very cautious of replying if he said the bird was alive the emperor in spite would kill it or could so he looked at the emperor for a long time and smiled and said majesty The answer is in your hands. Resilience is in your hands and speaking to power is part of that. I think that was a story that's worth reflecting on. Thanks, Alex. That's a great way to end. Resilience is in our own hands. I think that that's perfect. Good. Robert, it's great chatting with you again. And congratulations on the book once again. Uh, Thank you building resilient futures, uh, a lot of different perspectives here. And I think that's what uh, we need, especially with your story at the end here. You know, we need to look at ourselves and and different places where we can start. So I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much. Good. Pleasure. And everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.